0: Good morning, Chris, and welcome back to the Low Carb Paleo Show.
1: Good morning, guys. Happy to be here.
0: Good morning, Mark. How are you today?
2: Wonderful, as usual.
0: As usual. <laughs> Happy go lucky. Oh, yes.
2: I've been lucky most of my life.
0: All right, <laughs> All right Chris. Um, you, of course, you know some of our listeners might remember you and I already talked uh, A couple of years back, actually, I double-checked on that, and it's more like four years.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how time flies.
0: Time flies, huh?
1: Yeah, that's it. Um,
0: So thank you for coming back and telling us the latest news about the Savory Institute. So um, what's been going on the past
1: few years? Uh, lots been going on. We've, we've, uh, I think when I talked to you last, we had a, a couple of dozen of, of, um, global offices open. We call them savory hubs. Uh, we're now at, uh, 45, uh, field offices around the world on all six continents. Um, so the growth is, has been tremendous. Um, I feel like there's been an awakening to the notion of regenerative agriculture and what that means. And, um, I think that's that started to kind of percolate from insiders out to brands and then is getting to consumers to where regular folks are really starting to understand the concepts that the soil can be the solution to a lot of society's problems um, and that ultimately our ranchers and farmers are the ambassadors to that soil. And so how do we start uplifting them and their status and supporting them um, in ways that haven't been done before? Uh, farmers and ranchers, agriculturalists have always been society's peasant class. Um, yep. And I think we're, we're finally seeing a place where that might shift for the first time in history. Um, and then, and then personally I've, I've been through quite a bit in the last uh, four years, most notably last year, um, there was a, a series of wildfires that came through uh, Northern California. Uh, one in the town of paradise where nice. the entire town burned. Um, wow. Fifty thousand people got displaced, twenty thousand structures destroyed, uh, and we lost our home and our pets and all of our belongings oh, wow. in that. Um, so it's it's uh, since last November has been a wild ride, uh, to say the least. Uh, but uh, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, well, we can we can move away. Uh, The housing market has gone crazy because 50,000 people that used to have a house are looking for one now. Um, So people were paying, uh, you know, 30 and 40% over asking price cash offers. It, it got bananas. And so we looked at each other and said, well, we can, we can move and relocate and we can leave this community um, or we can double down and look for the opportunity and look for the upside. So while houses were incredibly expensive, Uh, land was not. And so we bought 60 acres of burned land uh, to turn it into a little homestead. We have a, both she and I have a background in agricultural production um, in this area. And um, so we've never been able to afford land. We've always worked for somebody else. And so we said, we can, we can bring this back. We can, um, we can do this. And so we were able to get a piece of property for about 80% below what normal prices would be in the area. Um, And also, get to inject some confidence and capital into our community, even though it's just a little small thing from, um, you know, just a couple trying to, um, positively improve our community, but we hope that enough people do that kind of stuff. And, uh, it'll provide hope to a, a community that's hurting and still struggling, um, nine, 10 months after the disaster. Um, right. so it's been a wild ride. So I'm, I'm, we're li- living in an RV now. Uh, funny enough, it's, it's the RV. I used to go, um, Camping with my grandparents in uh, 30 years ago as a little tyke. Um, and so never thought I'd be living with my family of four in this little 29 foot metal box. Uh, right. But we are uh, loving every minute out of it and making the most of it. So uh, it's been a wild ride since we talked last year, yeah. last four years ago. <laughs>
0: well, sorry about the bad news, but um, hopefully something good will come out of it. And uh, not only that, but you get to apply what you've been talking about all along, right? Um, on the local local level, and you can also take advantage of the fact that typically burned ground is more, uh, how do you say? It, because it, the ashes and everything, um, things It, it can...
1: definitely is more minerals available and it's definitely a clean slate that allows things to really express themselves in a new way. It, mm. From a work standpoint, it's really interesting that I've spent my career fighting big issues like world hunger and water issues and, but, but climate change has been a huge part of that. And, and there's no doubt that this forest was too dry as a result of climate change. Um, And this fire happened November 8th. Uh, When, when, I mean, in the States that's, you know, Thanksgiving holiday season. When was that ever fire season? It was never fire season before. And, I, I, not to overplay that, but I feel like I'm now living to a certain degree as a climate change refugee after having worked on it for my entire career. Um, so it's provided a new level of kind of primal, visceral reaction to the work that we're doing. And we're out of time. We, we got to get this right. Um, we don't want more people to go through these kind of disasters.
0: Mm. And I suppose fires like this don't help with uh, the atmosphere.
1: No, nope, no, nope, they make it worse. Yeah, yeah. Fire, fire can be a tool in, in land regeneration. Um, but in a world of the climate change that we're at, it's, it's very low on our list at Saber Institute of employing right. that tool just because it puts out quite a bit of negative to get a little bit of good. Um, right. So we try to avoid, avoid fire whenever possible.
0: Right, but if I if I remember uh, vaguely, uh, if that forest was managed properly and they had uh, burned some of the undergrowth to control fire, it might have
1: not been so bad, right? For sure. Yeah, you can you can use two two tools there to control that. Well three. You can use mechanization, which is expensive. You can use fire, which puts off quite a bit of pollutants. And you could also increase your number of, of browsing animals. So these are grazing animals that eat brush or sticks or woody vegetation. Um, so so we're really doing my wife and I personally are doing a lot of exploration right now of could we get a very large goat herd. Going here in Northern California to start doing that kind of work. And, and then instead of putting out pollutants into the atmosphere, we'd be clearing all that underbrush and turning it into positive products, meat, milk, leather, um, things of that right. nature. Yeah,
0: so, yeah. I heard in Spain they use goats as, um, as a natural, you know, um, mower, so to speak.
1: Yeah, they do it here. It just, has, it just isn't widespread enough. And so we need to start accelerating that and galvanizing it.
0: Yeah, going back to the farmers, uh, I personally think it's about time people realize that the farmers are our source of food, and if we neglect them for too long, then we're going to be
1: SOL, right? For sure. I think, it's, I think it's not only our source of food. We have to remember our source of fiber, and yeah. um, ecosystem services is something that's really kind of starting to come into its own, or that we're realizing the farms that are managed properly are actually cleaning our water they're cleaning our air they're providing habitat for wildlife um and that has real value to society so um just like what we were talking about with the fire that could have been mitigated through proper management if there was a mechanism in place for someone to have a goat herd and have a business and clean that up floods is the easier one for for people to kind of grasp and understand tangibly but um you look at what happens after a hurricane um, you know, how many inches of rainfall or or centimeters of rainfall, um, over the course of a day. And you start looking at some of the best farmers out there and they've got their soils to where they can accept 15 inches of rain an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. You start doing the math on that and going, wait a minute, if we properly manage our soils, the water that's falling on the rural areas around the city is not going to flow into the city and flood it. Uh, and so a lot of these major hurricane events that cost billions of dollars to clean up could actually be prevented through good management. So the, the, the food and the fiber are almost a, a, an extra in that case right. um, that you could actually help improve the environment at the same time. And there's a real business case we made for that. You look at how much money gets spent on those rehabilitation efforts? Uh, every country in the world is is managing that in the uh, typically in the billions of dollars every year, and um, that 's something that if a small amount of that money went to go to support the farmers on the front end uh, in a proactive way, the farmers would benefit benefit tremendously uh, and so would society and the government would actually end up saving money in the end but
0: the problem is you and I know it's always. Um... Prevention is never
1: a <laughs> solution
0: in modern society. It's all about
1: right. Very um, making reactive
0: profits, yeah. you know, uh, using up the land as much as fast as possible until it dies, and now we are, we're in trouble. So um, yeah. going back to and, and, and kind of refreshing people's mind on, um, can you talk to us about land regeneration again?
1: Yeah. So the the notion of this buzzword of regenerative agriculture, which has really taken off in the last 18 months, I can remember being at a, there's a big natural food expo, an industry expo um, called Expo West that happens in Anaheim outside of Los Angeles every year. And a hundred thousand people are in attendance typically on an average year. And I can remember two, three years ago saying the term regenerative agriculture and having a journalist raise their hand and go, I don't know what that term means. Now you go to that event and every brand out there is talking about the term of regenerative agriculture. And, and really the way that I view that term, and, and I think it's the simplest to grasp, is basically making the environment better, healing the land while still producing high-quality products and without compromising on quantity, so we don't we don't have to lower our production. We just learn to farm like nature, and and nature never suffers in production. If you look at nature, it's it's very diverse, but it's very abundant, and so we don't we don't lose in production. Uh, and every every critter in that ecosystem, whether flora or fauna is finding a way to positively contribute back to the whole. And so we need to start making our agriculture systems do the same thing. We, Over the last 70 to 80 years in particular, we've gotten very myopic and very siloed in our approach to where we have these very linear systems that we produce one thing and we produce that one thing in very high numbers, very high production. And then we go, oh, well, if we farm like nature, that one thing would have to, we'd have to have less production. Well, that's true. It does have less production, but you're raising five other things with it. And so when you put that all together, the actual production is much larger. It's just we're not looking at that one linear silo. Um, and so that's that's the idea of what regenerative agriculture is. The grazing aspect of that in particular is is the notion that animals and plants are together everywhere in nature. And so again, this idea of dividing those apart in agriculture and say, these are places where we grow crops and these are places that we grow animals and we're never gonna mix the two, is ludicrous. it's bananas. Um, And so we have to start putting those two systems back together uh, because that's how nature works. Um, Grass is incredible. Grasslands are the forgotten ecosystem and they are incredible at sequestering carbon uh, they improve water infiltration rates. Most of our underground water tables uh, are recharged through nearby grasslands. Almost all of the major food-growing regions of the world are former grasslands um, that have built deep, rich, fertile soils from being grazed, rested, grazed, rested. Um, and then what keeps those that that grazing-rested pattern is is predator pressure. So the animals bunch together, and they stay bunched and moving all the time. Um, and then a billion people in the world still live on grasslands. And to date, we're really the only major worldwide organization going, it's about the grasslands. The grasslands are the forgotten ecosystem. Yes, forests are important. Yes, oceans are important. Yes, charismatic species are important. But we can't forget the grasslands. They're so important to human civilization. Uh, and so that's that's become our mission in that regenerative agriculture umbrella is to manage the grasslands well and to do it right. properly manage grazers.
0: So what, one of the biggest complaints, especially coming from the vegan side of things, uh, I know it sounds like I'm always on the, on the vegan people, but they say, well, you know, animals are bad for the environment, blah, blah, blah. Um, can you tell us the interaction between the animals on grass, and how that benefits the environment because it, you know, you don't need to eat meat to benefit from animal grazing on land and helping regenerate, um, you know, and and uh, uh, the benefits to the environment. So if you could talk to that, that would be great.
1: Yeah, when when people choose to not eat meat for Personal reasons, religious reasons. I, I have zero qualms with that, any way, shape, or form. When they choose to not eat meat for environmental reasons, I immediately want to get into a conversation and, and unpack that, that that a little bit further. Because the reality is, is that when animal agriculture is done correctly, it's incredibly beneficial, probably the most beneficial tool we have to heal the environment. When it's done incorrectly, it's incredibly destructive and that and that's most of the message that we get in in major media today is that that incorrect side and so the very reactive response to that is well animal agriculture shouldn't exist and I'm not going to participate in that if we break it down the the nature of how it works is is like I said grass plants sequester carbon very well Um, the answer to to climate change and um, this many of this planet's problems is photosynthesis. We want as much photosynthesis to happen as possible. Basically, what happens is the the plant is able to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, put it in the soil, mix it with water, and make a carbohydrate. That's, that's the photosynthesis equation that we all learned in high school biology and, and have probably forgotten. Um, and, and there's a lot of magic to that, because now that carbohydrate becomes part of this whole carbon... Um, Ecosystem that we're just starting to learn about. Um, it's, a, it's a whole uh, economy, if you will, where that carbon gets traded between species and creates more abundance and more fertility, the ability for the soil to hold on to more water, yada, yada. So it, I get that if, if you get to that point and go, okay, photosynthesis is what we need, why would an animal that's going to come bite that grass plant be our benefit? Um, and what happens is, is that when uh, a grass plant gets old, photosynthesis slows and then of course when it dies it stops and so uh having an animal to come and prune that and be able to pull out that dead material but also to bring that grass plant back down into a lower stage of its growing cycle will actually churn it to be more productive and say oh I've got to grow again in order to grow I've got to do more photosynthesis um that's a very very uh, a bridged version of how it works. Uh, yeah. I've got a 40 minute talk on that specifically. So I'll, I'll spare you guys that, but, but, um, the notion of getting the timing right so that you're basically turning that grass into a carbon pump. Um, and, and not just for the sake of carbon, It's that when you put carbon in the ground, you increase your productivity so your land gets healthier. And so the notion of getting those grazing animals time just right to where you're maximizing your efficiency and you're constantly keeping that grass in the right stage of its growth uh, is where all the magic happens. And so that's the work that our organization does and that Alan Savory has been promoting for the last 50 years.
0: Yeah, the thing that we need to remind people is that carbon is... Being made out to be the bad guy in this whole thing, but carbon is absolutely necessary for life, and uh, plants and trees, uh, thrive on carbon without carbon, they cannot grow properly right
1: yeah, carbon is just a matter of, of what pool is the term scientists use, what pool it sits in the pool of the atmosphere it 's a liability it 's a negative to human life the pool of the soil, it's a benefit. And we have this amazing mechanism of plant life using photosynthesis that transfer it from one pool to the other. So we can take a liability, we can take an asset, we can turn it into a profit. Why wouldn't we do that all day long? Um, so that's, that's really what the movement is about. And, and you're right, the the notion of carbon being a negative is everything that we hear. We hear about emissions reduction, emissions reductions, emissions reductions, Guys, I'm I'm here to tell you, we're 30 years late on that. Mm. We are already at 420 parts per million in the atmosphere. Almost all scientists agree we need to be at 350. Many scientists say 280 is where we need to be at. We are way over the line. So here's the part no one ever says. If we stopped burning all fossil fuel emissions right this minute, we are still screwed. It's Mm. already baked in. And so we have to stop. It's not a question. It's a matter of how quickly can we do it. But while we're in the process of stopping, we have to also be figuring out how to pull that excess down. Otherwise, the game's already lost. So so we love the people that are working on all the renewable energies and all the things that help wean us off our addiction to this poison that's killing the planet. But we can't stop there. And that can't be where the conversation ends. We have to bring down the excess.
0: Right, right. Um, going back to the farmers, um, first of all, I'm, I'm very glad that you have more and more farmers involved and um, interested to uh, into this uh, land generation, uh, regeneration. One, one aspect of it which I'm very curious about is agritourism. I understand you used to be part of that. Uh, can you tell us about it and maybe encourage some people out there to... Uh, visit yeah. some farms so they get to see really real life how things are working there
1: yeah yeah so um, so what you're referencing there is is my wife and I helped form the agritourism codes for the state of California to say this isn't a petting zoo it's not it's not a bed and breakfast it's it's something in between and so to allow that to be able to start taking place so we put uh, a series of cabins on our farm we started an education program for school students Um, we were very early on in that movement now in the work that I do with savory we're helping to support that globally so uh, we work with an amazing organization that comes top of mind many many of our field offices have an agritourism component uh, but we work with one in the Masai Mara in Kenya Uh, called House in the Wild that has this amazing location that really is about the experience and and getting people to start viscerally experiencing the land. You know, we're the most ecologically illiterate society of history and we're finally getting to a population that's craving connection back to the land, craving connection back to authenticity uh, because we realize I think at a very primal internal level society's feeling that we are out of balance we're not supposed to live in concrete jungles and stare at a screen all day we're supposed to experience life and get our hands dirty um and so this idea of agritourism is taking off around the world Uh, and it's amazing, yes, absolutely. Um, You can Google it. There's all sorts of resources out there. Uh, You can go on the Savory Institute website and start going to our hubs. Many of them have a page specifically about agritourism. We have a program called Journeys where we take people around the world and expose them to um, these operations that are doing things right. Um, But one way or another, yes, go find a place to go visit the land, take your kids there. It's an amazing way uh, to build memories in, in a way that is different than, and I'm not knocking a trip to Disneyland um, or any of those kind of amusement parks, but it's, it's so different um, and will change your life. I still get letters from people that came and visited our cabins when we started them um, almost 10 years ago now and say it changed their life. These are kids that are now grown and they find a way to reach back out to us on Facebook or find us uh, and right, say it was life changing for them.
0: Um... If you want to do it well, uh, Disney and all of these parks are artificial um, entertainment, so to speak. And there's nothing like exposing kids to nature, yeah. for a real life experience. I was lucky to visit two of the farms that we we have had on the show. Uh, White Oak farms in uh, Atlant I mean, in uh, Georgia. Yeah, and the other one in Portland last year, and it's just uh, wonderful. I didn't stay the one uh, in Portland, but I actually stayed for a week at the w- at the one in Georgia. Yeah, and I've stayed there too. You you step out of the this little cabin, and uh, you're surrounded with chicken and and, and goats <laughs> and you know yeah, uh, just cool. roaming around. They don't they don't even pay attention to you. You know. Um, yeah was a little concerned even at one time because I was surrounded by chickens. I, I was like, you know, being a city boy is like, are they going to attack me and pet me? <laughs> the
1: attack of the chickens, yeah. yeah um, well, you never know, you know. And, and right down the road from you in Fredericksburg, uh, there's Rome Ranch, which was started by Katie and Taylor who started Epic Provisions, yes. um, and so they've started a ranch now, and it has some opportunities for people to go out there um, and, and, and experience. They've, they've put a bison ranch in, and they've only been managing it for maybe 18 months, maybe maybe it's less, maybe a year, um, and already – no, I guess it's longer than that, 18 months – um, and already seeing the fence line comparisons of their neighbors that are farming conventionally and the work that they're doing with the bison, it's incredible. I mean, it's really That's great. incredible. Yeah. I didn't
0: know I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, that would be a good idea for a weekend or for a
1: week off. For sure. Um,
0: yeah. I, I guess I'll need to... Do they mention that on their website somewhere? For sure. Or...
1: Yeah, it's Rome Ranch, and I think it's romeranch.com. Um, yeah. But yeah, they've got options to be able to come out stay and then they also do um hunts so they're trying to get people back into authentic old world hunting to where Uh, it truly honors the animal and then you and then you utilize the whole animal as well and so uh it's it's a really incredible program they've put together i've i've been there three or four times and it's just stunning
0: like mark would say that's not really my cup of tea
1: yeah, right? <laughs> um, you don't I, have I to do know, the hunting thing.
0: I know we need to kill animals to eat them, but yeah. I don't want to kill animals. I, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would go on a photography safari anytime because sure. the, yeah. the the hunt is similar. It's yep. just yes. instead of shooting a gun, I'm shooting a camera, which is camera. a whole different. Um, no, I don't. I don't like killing animals. So, um you know, as long as they provide me breakfast I'll probably show short <laughs> <point>. <laughs> I, I I did stay on a I did stay on the dude ranch uh a few years ago and there was long horns just outside the cabin. Now they were behind fence because that I'm pretty sure they they might not attack me, but I was by uh, these <laughs> are big animals, right? right? So a little a little um, cautious. Um so moving along, uh can you tell us about your land to market program?
1: Yeah. So another thing that we've done in the last few years since we've talked is we've, we've launched this program called land to market. Uh, And it's based on the idea that, that we had, we had producers starting coming to us and saying, "Listen, we're healing our land. We're, we're, it's, it's, you can feel that it's different where many of them are even doing measurements and saying scientifically we can show the health of the land is improving but there's not a program in the marketplace that that speaks to this um there's a lot of great programs out there that say oh we don't use chemicals and the labor is treated fairly and the animals are treated fairly um but all of them just infer to the land getting better. None of them actually speak to it directly or measure it or, or track it over time. The same time we had brands starting coming to us and, and Epic Provisions, who I mentioned has been a, a pioneer in this. In fact, um, it was an early partnership between us and them that really brought this program to fruition. But we had brands coming to us saying, okay, you you work on six continents, all habitable, all six habitable continents, You've trained tens of thousands of people over the last 50 years. You're very connected with the the best of the best of ranchers and farmers. How can we start engaging with that audience? And we thought, well, yes, we've trained tens of thousands of people, but but now you're asking us to vouch for them, to to vet them, and that's that's not something that we really had a mechanism in place for. Out of those conversations came a program called Land to Market, where we said, okay, instead of creating a certification that checks practices, that says, okay, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you're in the program. And really most, most practice-based certifications are a lot of lists of here's what you're not allowed to do, not so many of here's what you should do. But nonetheless, we said, we can take that a step further And rather than telling producers around the world what they should be doing, why don't we just go measure their outcomes? And we'll measure their outcomes in a way that there's benefit for them in seeing what's happening to their land and their resilience. And there's benefit to society because we can measure those ecosystem services that I mentioned earlier. Um, And so what we put together is a way that we, we can track real empirical results. So now, for the first time in history, a consumer can pick up a a package, a product that says, this product made the land better as a result of how it was produced. And we have quantifiable empirical data behind that. Um, That quantifiable empirical data is part of a a protocol that we call EOV or Ecological Outcome Verification. Um, And it's the first outcome-based verification in the marketplace. And what we're looking at is we're looking at a whole myriad of things. So so just like we were saying, it's it's not just carbon. It's the broader picture that goes with carbon. So we're looking at soil organic matter and carbon, but we're also looking at water infiltration rates, the ability for the soil to hold water. We're looking at biodiversity. So biodiversity of the microbes in the soil, biodiversity of the different plants, tracking wildlife populations. We're looking at all of these things together because... Yes, carbon is important, but water follows carbon and wildlife follows water. Um, And so when you look at the whole thing together, it's a much more comprehensive look at ecosystem health. So that's the program that we've built. Um, And now we have our first products going to marketplace. So because we started working with Epic first, they now have soon to be three products in the marketplace. They launched their first one last year that are all coming from farms that are verified to be regenerative. That means those farms are getting better while still producing those high quality products. Um, And then we've got about 20 or 30 other products with other brands in development. Uh, The program works outside of just food. We're working in meat, dairy, wool, leather, and cashmere. Um, So all products coming from ruminants or or grazing animals, Um, but looking at the whole myriad of products that come from them. Um, so that's, that's been really exciting. It's taken up most of my time for the last two years, uh, building out that program, getting the right partners engaged at the brand level, uh, getting our hubs supported with, uh, trainers and monitors, um, getting local brands so that the mom and pops are supported uh, in this and being able to move forward um, and getting the program off the ground. So it's taken a bit to get there, but, but we're doing it now, which is super exciting.
0: I I think it's great. And uh, you're doing great progress. Um, uh, Besides Epic, who, who are your partners?
1: So we have dozens of partners at the local level. So this is somebody that, you know, buys from one region and sells in the same region. Um, so like White Oak Pastures that you mentioned, not only are they a savory hub, but their brand is a market partner to the program. But the bigger brands, and I, I say that because I don't want to give people the idea that this was a something that we designed for big business, but we do believe that some of the bigger players can be part of the solution um, mm. and that there are some very consciously minded larger businesses that we we want to be involved with. And so it's a little bit of a invite only. We are very particular in which groups we invite to work with, but the brand partners that we have currently at the national or multinational level are Epic Provisions of course, Applegate um so we're Applegate that does the lunch meats, the cheeses, the hot dogs We've got a lot of products in development with them right now. Uh, they have a new sub-brand they've launched called the New Food Collective. Uh, so we're primarily at this point working through that, that sub-brand. Um, we've got Union Snacks, which is a new up-and-comer. Um, I think your audience would be very interested in this. They do a um, they do a, a bar, which is nuts, grains, and like beef jerky mixed together. Um, Mm -hmm. So for the paleo crowd, probably not what you're looking for because the grains, but they do a charcuterie product where it's basically um, very high end sausages that get dried into like a chip. Um, And I guess companies have been trying to figure out how to dry sausages into a chip for a long time. And these Mm -hmm. guys figured it out. Um, So that company is called Union Snacks uh, and they're just getting products into the marketplace. Uh, we also work with um, Zooks, which is a pet treat company uh, that 's actually part of Purina Nestle um, but again, so how can we utilize the whole animal? How can we honor the whole animal we 're starting to put together product lines that utilize organ meats and parts of the animals that don 't always go for human consumption and putting them into uh, treats for your dogs and cats because uh, they 're nutrient dense um, and we can again utilize that whole animal um, we 're also getting into the fashion space and so we work with a, um, a parent company called caring k e r i n g caring is the parent company to Gucci balenciaga saint laurent a number of luxury brands so bringing the idea of regenerative into luxury fashion. Um, these, are, these are companies that have never moved away from using animal products. Uh, they want to honor those products and those mediums um, and keep them around. And so for them to do that responsibly, they need to be sourcing from regenerative sources. So getting those pilots going with them has been super exciting. Um, Eileen Fisher. Uh, is another one, Uh, Eileen Fisher is a lifestyle brand based in New York City, um, has always focused on natural fibers, uh, really, really incredible brand, um, predominantly women, uh, only women's clothing. Um, And so we're working with them now. They'll have a whole line of sweaters coming out this fall that's verified regenerative through the program. Um, So again, it's a mixture of um, the food side and the apparel side together. And and if you think about it, the food side has been very good at connecting with consumers on their values, on um, connecting back to the farm and, and maintaining that story and telling the story of the farmer. Apparel, because they were bad at it historically, has gotten very good at creating chain of custody and better processing and... Uh, social welfare issues at processing. So they've spent the last 20 years really overhauling their supply chains. If you put those two together, it's a complete pie. It's a complete puzzle that right now they're working very siloed. And so we've start to started to build a bridge between food and fashion um, and create collaborative connections between them. The other interesting thing is they're all sourcing from the same farms. So um, there's not a contract leather grower in the world. Leather is a waste product of the food industry, but has more margin in the marketplace. And so we're starting to build those connections that say, hey, if food company A is has all these elevated claims and is connecting with consumers on shared values and, and apparel company B is doing the same things, how about the food company gets the meat and the, the apparel company gets the hides uh, and we can put something together, create more value for the producer, and ultimately make things easier so the consumer can get the products that they care about. Um, yeah. So that's that's where the program's going.
0: Yeah, God knows the fashion industry is being um, uh, it's bad bad reputation only because they're using animal furs or skins, but uh, some of their practices were very very suspicious as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. I recently saw a, a whole um, uh, show on how mm, some of the high-end brands are lying about, you know, the the source of their leather, the the what they call greenwashing, using that sure. to to you know claim to be better and cleaner than the rest of the competition. And when they check yeah. out, it's it's not true. So we need a program like yours that puts all of it together is good for them. It's good for the consumer. They won't feel so guilty about wearing fur. <laughs> That's right. um, uh, and, and I have um, something just popped in my mind. Uh, a few weeks, two, few weeks ago, we talked to grassroots farmers, uh, which is a very neat company. And one thing that intrigued me is that they use the blockchain as a as a constant um, verification system. Uh, is that something you would advocate for your, your people?
1: Absolutely. Your... Absolutely. The, the beauty of blockchain is that you, you can transact money along with uh, maintaining all sorts of records with it. And so to be able to utilize that tool to not only maintain information all the way back to the farm, but also provide that, what they call, I've used this term already, chain of custody, to show, okay, it went to all these different processors and along the way, here's how we know that the the product didn't get commingled or um, adulterated in some way along, along the supply chain. Um, right. a- amazing, without a doubt. There are some challenges with blockchain as well in that many companies feel like Processing is their IP. It is their intellectual property. It is their point of difference, um, mm-hmm. and so they tend to be fairly proprietary about it. And so, I, my understanding of blockchain is that is that a smart person could figure out what somebody's transaction ID is, and then once they know what that ID, what that identification number is, they can start to figure out everywhere that, that company transacted and start to figure out who their who their processors are and how that works.
0: Yeah, that uh, on that subject there are actually a, a few companies that um, actually known to be hack proof uh, Monero is one of Wonderful. them Cash for example there's um, at least half a dozen companies that uh, pride themselves in their uh, not just secrecy but the fact that uh, their, the, the blockchain is, is non-hackable so that's awesome uh, you know, I would I would suggest you know somebody oh, look at we're
1: that. we're behind it 100 there's no risk to savory for participating in blockchain uh that right. we can see it's just a matter of how quickly are the companies willing to go there um yeah. and you have to understand that apparel is very different than food if if you if you make a new sausage and you have great branding and all that, okay, sure, over the course of the next couple of years, if you're really good at what you do, people are going to start to mimic your recipes and your branding, and it starts to look very similar and kind of a knockoff. But in apparel, if you come out with a new cashmere sweater, you're six weeks away from somebody out there, and I think we all know the big country out there, that tends to kind of (laughs) rip. people off but you know you're six weeks away from the same product being in the marketplace Um, that's almost indistinguishable the difference and the thing that you can hold on to is we have better quality sourcing and better quality processing. And so apparel looks at things very differently from that regard. So, so that's awesome that there's companies that are quote unquote hack proof. Um, and now it now just becomes around the, the companies understanding that and building trust with that. Um, but we have conversations about blockchain on a weekly basis. So it's definitely it's where a, we think it'll head.
0: It's a huge growth um, there's a huge growth in that that whole environment the whole cryptocurrencies sure. and uh, blockchain and so on um another silly question um which sort of relate to what you're doing what do you think is uh about hemp as as a crop regenerative crop usable for fiber not um, and maybe c b d oil but fiber to replace for I don't know all sorts of paper products and even clothing and so on Um, does is is there a future in that do you believe in that or is it kind of a fad right now
1: for sure um yeah so I don't have huge experience with with growing hemp uh every any experience with growing hemp everything I've looked at certainly looks amazing if it holds up to even half of that it's there's no reason that we shouldn't be growing hemp all over the world where i would like to see that happen is to where the hemp is planted in a polyculture of other species and that we're using animals to prepare the field and also remove uh, any sort of crop residue or stubble afterwards and that's where i think we really turn that cycle The, the probably best example of that in in North America is a farmer named Gabe Brown. Um, and so people can look him up. He's got amazing YouTube videos out there. Uh, yeah. He manages his animals holistically, but he's he's preparing for these crops that he grows with them. Um, th- I, I, I was talking to a farmer a couple of weeks ago who's getting into the hemp space. And even in our local area, I just saw a sign the other day on the side of the road that said something about the future of hemp but then, and it was a, it was a new hemp field. It's the first time we've seen that, but the tagline underneath the sign said something about, uh, we're not growing it to smoke it or something like that. And at first I thought, well, that's such a weird political statement. Then I realized the farmer probably doesn't want people coming and and trying to steal his crop because they think they're going to get high. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting crop that it's so politicized, but I see nothing but hope for hemp and, and, clothing in particular i think is it's just starting to emerge there's some major players out there like prana that's starting to use hemp in their blends uh i have a whole line of of hemp clothing that i that you know my wife and i wear that that we love i think the performance is is stellar but i think it's again getting that that mixture right with the whole regenerative agriculture story that having the animals in there um oh and i know what i was gonna say the other thing that i that i um i heard from a farmer the other day is that um genetics are such a play right now so uh, cannabis when it was black market was was all about of course thc and growing um the blends that get you high and really high i mean the thc concentrations everything was about higher and higher thc now we're starting to see that come down and say well maybe we need thc and cbd blends and and even i've heard growers start to talk about heirloom blends Hmm. but then you get over to the hemp side And the whole market's being driven by CBD. So all the strains are going towards CBD. And this farmer friend of mine was like, I want to grow hemp for fiber and I'm trying to do it. But finding genetics, finding seeds that are, that have been selected for fiber Mm. isn't available. And so there's a whole notion of like pioneers that are now starting their own seed saving and collecting for these new attributes. But uh, to me, the fiber market, even though it's not the biggest now, will probably become the biggest volume of cannabis species production um, right. will be around the fiber. And, and I yeah. think that's great that it's driven by the other uses.
0: Oh, a combination of fiber and CBD oil. Uh, oh, of uh, course. Texas um, has very, so far, very strict laws regarding this. I have still mm. haven't found a hemp farmer around here. I, I would be... Uh, interested in being involved in that but i hear canada is way ahead of us on that oh
1: without a doubt yeah yeah without a doubt and and canada doesn't get included in enough of the discussions around regenerative agriculture but i think very much in a canadian way of kind of soft-spoken and polite i think that they're further along in a lot of these discussions and they just don't they don't toot their own horn they yeah. <laughs> and so they've been kind of left out at a lot of the conferences and and global discussions and i i think that's a miss i think we need to be looking at canada more closely there's some really cool things happening up there yeah definitely talk to those guys and, and bring them out uh, of yeah. the,
0: uh from the shade yeah right <laughs> so uh you did mention that epic has a uh, few products on the market already uh and then you mentioned the snack company uh Who else? Uh, Is there some kind of a logo or stamp that we should know about?
1: Yeah, so every product gets a a seal on it that says land to market on it. Um, And so the product in the marketplace right now, like I said, we just have the one at the moment and a few dozen in development. um, But it's Epic's Beef Sriracha Bites. And so if you go on their website or go in the store, uh, you can get that product and you'll see the seal on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, like I was saying, we have a whole line of sweaters coming out in a couple of weeks. They're actually ready now. It's just not sweater season yet. Um, So as we get into cooler weather, those products will start to show up as well through Eileen Fisher. Um, And then, like I said, Applegate's got a bunch of stuff coming out through New Food Collective. We've got products in development with Zooks for the the pet treats. Um, Caring, we're working with them on all of their um, sub-brands and luxury fashion Uh, So it's, and and then the other one, Union Snacks, that I mentioned, uh, they're all coming along. So it's it's a really exciting time. Mm. Good,
0: good, good. I think I'm done for my questions here, Mark.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been a thoroughly interesting conversation, as we come to expect from you, Chris. Um, (laughs) Most of my questions really relate to sort of the first part of of our discussion. Um, Now, you did mention that you've gone from something like 25. Savory Hub, Savory Institute, Hubs four years ago to forty plus now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, forty
2: five. What, yeah. What's been the um, the reason for that sort of almost doubling?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if you would have if you would have talked to me twenty years ago, I started getting interested in regenerative agriculture in two thousand and two, three ish. Um, that's when I first met Joel Salatin uh, it was before he became famous. It became, he became a mentor of mine. He introduced me to Michael Pollan. Um, I was, I was in an early wave of this. If you would have told me then though, back in 2003 that we would have a global cadre of producers that are focused on regenerative outcomes. I don't think I would have believed you. The acceleration curve that we've been on for the last 20 years has been incredible. Um, I often talk about how in my own community I felt like an island. I felt like a single player by myself doing crazy things at scale, but everybody was like, who are those nut jobs over there and why are they farming that way? Joining the Saber Institute and, and, and helping build the network, I realized that it's more of an archipelago, that there's little islands everywhere and we are now connecting each other together um, and we're reaching tipping points. We're... we're moving forward in an adoption curve in a way that we're getting those exponential results. The other side of the coin, though, is part of that acceleration is because of the acceleration of climate change and the issues that we're seeing around the world and the fear and the real impact that's having uh, on society. And so people are waking up and saying, I have to be a a part of this. Um, And now it's a race against time to say, hopefully, we're not waking up too late.
2: Is it also too though that a regenerative regenerative that thing that I can't say?
1: <laughs> You're not alone in that.
2: <laughs> regenerative <laughs> I'm going to give up that type of farming. That's going to be a good outtake. That one. That type of farming can also be more profitable as well when it's done when it's done properly.
1: For sure, I think the real opportunity, like we were saying earlier, is the real opportunity is to open this up to producers to get paid for the positive outcomes they make for society. So, so yes, we want to still produce high quality products for consumers, but create all new value streams for producers to where the consumers don't necessarily bear the brunt of that, but to where governments and agencies and even brands are paying a producer for the good work that they do to society and and that's and that's the hope to create those new value streams so yes we have a consumer base that's waking up uh, but we also have governments and ngos waking up in ways that they haven't before and really looking at this creatively and for the first time in my life i'm hopeful that that producers could be elevated to a higher level than they have historically
2: yeah but i mean let 's look at costs a minute as well. Um, not only could it be more profitable for the producer for the sort of or the whole supply chain, I guess um, you mentioned earlier that um, when the land is man- managed in that uh, that good fashion, it can absorb a lot more water and so forth so therefore, it would uh, counteract. Or you wouldn't have the immense costs of some of the floods that have uh, occurred over the last or couple droughts. of weeks. Yeah.
1: Yep. yep, it goes both ways. Yeah, you build resiliency on both ends. So, So, yes, the value prop to producers is huge because our value prop to producers for decades was you increase your production. It's very typical for us within the first three years of working with producers to double their production. We do that in two ways. And the the first way we we find inefficiencies in their system. Most farmers by nature, because the environment is complex, they they act very reactively. And so you go out today and go, "Hmm, do the cows have enough feed or not? Should I move them today or move them tomorrow? That's very much like operating your budget on a cash basis. You would never start a farm, you would never, sorry, you would never start a business at the beginning of the year without a budget. Now, is that budget correct through the whole year? No, but it's a starting point, it's a plan, it's a framework that you operate on. What we're doing with producers is we're doing the same thing. We help them build a grass budget and a time budget for how many grazing days you have. And what they find when they do that is, all these little reactions they made throughout the year actually got their timing off. They're coming back too soon, or they're letting the, the grass get too long and too rank, and they're coming back too late. When you stay on task and you stay within that budget, all of a sudden you're hitting peak performance. And so, step one before we even heal the land is just overcoming those inefficiencies by building a proactive framework. Now that framework is also triple bottom line. So in addition to the, the profit pieces, we're lay- layering in social and environmental goals as well. So that you have something that you can leave your children so that your family, um, you know, like in dairy farmers, it's, it's because you're tied to milking twice a day. They often never take vacations. They, they often miss major events for their family. You start building some of those things in the old analogy of, you know, if you uh, put the rocks in the jar first and then the, then the pebbles and then the sand, then the water, if you do it in any other order, it doesn't fit. You have to put the big priorities in first. And so we build a proactive triple bottom line plan where people put those major priorities of their life and lifestyle design goes into that. Um, so it's a little bit more kumbaya than, than maybe uh, farmers always want to get or think about, but it, it, makes, it makes total sense. You'd, you'd never run a business without a budget and it's the same. Once the land starts healing, that's when we start to get those those multipliers because when the land starts healing, now you have more production to work with and it just goes up for the, from there. So that was our value prop and that was plenty for 50 years is just increasing production. You add in a consumer awakening and now a broader awakening among brands and governments and we start looking at price premiums and new value streams and carbon and water markets. Uh, it's a whole new ballgame and so... Um, yeah, the business case for it is without a doubt there. The whole notion of regenerative is you increase production while you heal the planet. It's everything (laughs) our world needs with a sick spaceship and a growing population. We have to figure out how to do both. And it's only when you farm like nature that you can do that.
2: Yeah. Now, I heard something very interesting the other day. Um, How many head of cattle are there roughly in the States at the moment?
1: Oh, I'm not going to have that. (laughs) 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 I wish I did. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know that I'd get the right ballpark. I don't know. You know
2: Six million, ten million, or something like that.
1: Sure, no, that sounds good. Than that. I would think
0: it'd be more, but yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. let um, Let me do a
1: little research. Yeah, Google it.
2: Nothing. <laughs> nothing like a live question
1: here. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Uh, This comes back to sort of something that uh, Alan was mentioning, you know, sort of one of the the famous vegan arguments is the fact that, you know, these cow farts and so forth and uh, the the bad high intensity production of cattle produces a lot of our um, problem, greenhouse gases, plus, you know, in uh, pollution of the water table and everything else. So, I mean, let's say there was a ballpark, well, I don't know, 10 million cattle at any one time in the States.
0: Almost sure. there, almost there. Um, okay. In 2018, 94.4 million
1: cattle. Yeah, right. yeah, I was going to say, it's about, <clears throat> it's about one to three young people. Um, so, so, yes, this is the classic argument is that we have, we eat too much meat and we have too many, consequently we have too many livestock on, on the planet.
2: Yeah, but the, the it, point is this: this historic data that I've been told, haven't yeah. been able to verify yet, is that sort of before the time of Buffalo Bill, there was something like a hundred million <laughs> bison, you know, roaming around North America, yep. and those were just the ones that were counted. So, you know, is is there any real argument that all of cattle production does actually increase the greenhouse gas? I don't. I wouldn't have thought so.
1: No, no. So the the this country, North America, this continent, I should say, used to have. 40 species of megafauna. Many of those were grazers that we've lost today. We're down to six native ones. Um, and so there's been a huge reduction of that. But if we look globally, the scientific community agrees that we used to have many times more wild ruminants than we have wilder domestic today. And so the argument that somehow the the burps and farts are what's creating the methane at the meta level, at just a common sense check doesn't, doesn't pass it doesn't hold no, it doesn't. water yeah. there, the, the way i see it there's two options from that either the way we manage the animals is incorrect or the way that we measure or understanding of the carbon cycle or methane is incorrect and I, and I think it's probably some of both when you look at when you look at feedlot agriculture It has a horrendous impact on society. When you look at feedlot agriculture mixed with something like a manure lagoon, so this is very common in dairies, to where all of that excrement, all of that manure gets washed into a lagoon, into a holding tank, and now you create anaerobic conditions. That lets all sorts of methane off. You're, in essence, creating a manure wetland, um, and we know that's going to create all sorts of methane. There There was a big report that the UN put out uh about 15 years ago called livestock's long shadow that they got caught for actually measuring the methane that came off of manure lagoon and extrapolating that to how much methane an animal puts off and then saying well if if each animal puts off that much methane it would be the same for grass-fed beef well grass-fed beef doesn't use a manure lagoon and those animals are bunched and moving, depositing the manure in the way that nature is ready to take it and absorb it. Um, so this is where the nuance gets really, really interesting. But again, at that meta level, we know the planet used to have many times more wild ruminants. The interesting thing is, and, and this science is a little bit fuzzier, but the the weather what do they call historical weather people? I want to say weather anthropologists, but that's the wrong word. The um, historical weather people, the ancient weather people are finding that those periods were actually, when we had the most amount of ruminants and you see peaks and valleys in that, when we had the most, we're actually closer to cooling trends, not warming trends because those grasses were sequestering carbon. Um, You take that forward to the last hundred years. Over the last hundred years, we do have a pretty good sense of what, the global herd of domestic animals has been, and that has gone like this. So it follows market trends, follows demand, and we see that number go up and down. The line for methane has gone like this. It's a straight linear line. There's no correlation that's ever been developed between those two. So that would make me wonder, methane is still going up and it's going up in a linear fashion. It it doesn't seem to be like oh it's just shifted forward ten years because it takes time to metabolize or for that impact to be shown. It's linear. The other's algorithmic. It's all over the place. And so, what the scientists are finding now is that cultivation, so tilling soil, releases a tremendous amount of methane and carbon. And the other one that's probably the most interesting is they've identified this class of bacteria called a methanotroph. Uh, A methanotroph eats nothing but methane. That's its sole role on this planet in this world. And our populations of methanotrophs from our historical records look like they've been declining for the last 70 to 80 years. What kills methanotrophs? The, The science is still out, but the early signs show that it's probably salts in in synthetic fertilizers, in inorganic fertilizers. It's the salts in there that's killing them off. So our cropping practices might be greater to blame for climate change than, than certainly animal agriculture. I don't think the evidence there holds up. Um, and the interesting thing about cropping when you divide the two apart, for some reason, cropping always gets a free pass. That, that oh, if if, if, we're, if we're farming tens of thousands of acres of soy, because it's a plant, it must be okay. I mean, we can get into the whole impossible burger debate here um, of a highly, there's nothing more highly processed than that food. And there's nothing more industrial in the way it's farmed than that product. And somehow it's been given the free pass that it's it's better for the planet, better for us. It makes no sense. But the thing that's never made sense to me is that if you think of cropping it, it's a very base sense you're scraping away an ecosystem and trying to micromanage a new one. Yeah. Ranching, you're trying to fit animals into an ecosystem. And even the worst of producers are, are just for their, own, for their own self-benefit are trying to keep that at status quo so that they can come back next year and do it again. And so it's a much more functional ecosystem over here than you have over here on the cropping side. And yet for some reason we all go, this is the one that we should all be leaning towards. And this is the one that has a smaller impact. It's never made sense to me um, from a common sense standpoint.
0: I have a comment regarding the burping and the farting. farting. Um, (laughs) What people don't realize is that the way the animals, the uh, industrial animals are fed, they are fed typically soy, corn, alfalfa. And uh, soy and corn are not, digestible by remnants. Their system is not designed so that creates gas and the gas has to go somewhere. So you can blame it not only on the food they eat, but also you could also um, insert the, the GMO aspect and all the, hmm. you know, additional uh, poisoning and pesticides and all that added to that. So it's 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 too easy to blame the cows when the humans should be, because, and and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it true that uh, cows feeding on grass do not expel methane as much as, or if if at all, then? uh,
1: Yeah, the interesting thing is, is that a cow's rumen is is a sauerkraut crock, and, and modern society has been treating it as a distillery. So we're dumping corn in there and fermenting the corn and going, oh, that's weird, the animal's sick, we're sick, and the environment's worse off whereas it was designed to take roughage and cellulose and break that down, which is an amazing task that the world needs. You, you, you go into hill country and try to grow crops there. What are you going to do with that land other than have it grazed? And if it's grazed, don't you want it to mimic nature? So, so yes, you're spot on. Their diet is a huge part of that. Um, it's, it's not that, that animals that eat, that eat grass don't expel methane. The interesting part of the puzzle that no one ever talks about is that grass does this amazing service of sequestering carbon, but if the grass is never eaten and it just dies in the ecosystem on its own, so no, no ruminant was around to eat it, the same microbes that are in the animal's rumen are in the soil and those same microbes will break that grass down as it, as it, as it uh, decomposes in that environment and they release the same methane. It's just the nature, they poop out methane. And so the same methane comes out. So if we think to ourselves and go, okay, what's happening here at the, at the meta level, the grass is sequestering these huge amounts of carbon, but when it breaks down, some methane is released, the real missing link is that the check and balance to that in nature is these bacteria, the methanotrophs that would have eaten that methane right there in the ecosystem and turned it back into another carbon compound and released it back into that carbon economy below the soil that we're just learning so much about. Um, That, that gets pretty nerdy and deep in the weeds. And and hopefully your listeners haven't checked out at this point Uh, (laughs) that we've gotten too nerdy on this, but um, we've missed the boat. I mean, again, we're such we're a species that by nature the way we think is to distill things into linear myopic silos and we've done the same with our research as we've done with the way our agriculture is produced we have industrialized research industrialized science and we're thinking very reactively we're not looking at the bigger picture Yes, methane is a problem, but it's part of an ambient cycling. And when that system is in check, it's not a problem any longer. And that's the part that's been broken. So yes, cows release methane as part of that system, um, but they're not the culprit of what's gone wrong. It's actually this bacteria that's gotten out of check and we need to figure out how to bring them back into the system.
2: Yeah. I mean, we've we've got no risk of our listeners checking out. They are fortunately a very intelligent, well-informed bunch on the whole.
1: Excellent. I love it. I love it. We can nerd out all together. Oh, we can. can. (laughs) Uh, That's wonderful. Super. Well, that's
2: all of my questions. Um, Is there anything that you want to tell us that we haven't asked you about yet?
1: No, that's never a challenge with me. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm an oversharer, not an undersharer. I think it was quite evident by this interview.
2: <laughs> Super. Yeah, so no, where, where, where can people find out more about the work you do and uh, the work of the Saver Institute and so on?
1: Yeah, to learn more about everything we talked about today, whether it's uh, Savory Hub or just the process of how we're engaging with ranchers or that land-to-market program um, and all sorts of other cool stuff, you can go to our website, which is savory.global. Uh, so we got super cool and chic and dropped the whole .com.net notion. Some people get confused by that. If you're confused, you can still go to savoryinstitute.org uh, or savory.global. Both will get you there. Uh, We've got all sorts of great content coming up there all the time. So yeah, check it out.
2: And of course, you you are open to farmers of any size coming and finding out about things as well, aren't you?
1: We're totally scale agnostic. The principles that we um, teach and employ, it doesn't matter if you have one acre or a million acres, uh, it still works the same way.
2: Excellent. Helen, I think it's probably time for you to do your famous bit.
0: (laughs) Closing. So here we go. Thank you again, Chris, for being on the local paleo show. And uh, as we say in Texas, a votre
1: santé, yo. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure again, and I look forward to doing it again soon.
2: It's been brilliant and interesting. Thank you again, Chris.
1: Likewise. Yeah. Thank so you. I-